All right, Bo, thank you so much for being here. It's so great to see you. I love when two brokers get together. It's great. Talk shop, brother. It's always my favorite podcast. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have a great time today. I I had uh, Reed on the podcast. I think yesterday. Reed oh Bob. yeah, yeah. He's my uh, other favorite brother from another state. Like awesome, good stuff. Yeah, he's a good dude. I know who you are, but if you could maybe give the audience a little bit of background on who you are, what you do, and and how you got here. Yeah, of course. So I'm a multifamily broker. I broker anything over 10 unit, conventional and student housing, and I cover the northern half of Florida. So kind of Polk County is my southern border. I don't cover Orlando and Tampa because it's almost all institutional. I'm a mid-market guy. 86% of my transactions are between 20 and 175 units. Sometimes I do bigger ones, sometimes I do smaller ones, but that's my wheelhouse. Background is I actually started in on-site property management in an apartment complex in the late 90s after getting a marketing degree, went back and got a master's degree in real estate from UF, worked for a developer slash investor for 10 years, brokering and managing his portfolio of office, retail, industrial apartments, got to buy and sell some stuff with him as a partner. And then in 2010, great opportunity popped up to acquire a Coldwell Banker and a Coldwell Banker Commercial. They were the top firms in town. And I just went in and brokered commercial assets. I was a generalist for the first year and a half, two years, and then just went exclusive multifamily about 2012. I sold back those companies to my partners. And in 2021, I just started my own little boutique Bo Beery Multifamily Advisors. And it's just me and a couple staff members and farm out everything else and just a sniper approach, man. Yeah. You've built quite a, a practice for yourself and you do it. You're, you're a one-man shop because we've talked about, I'm <laughs> sure everybody has talked to you about joining them, but you prefer sure. to be on your own. Why do you prefer that versus maybe a larger brand? Yeah, I got a taste of that. I know Coal Banker Commercial is certainly not comparative to some of the exclusive multifamily brokerages around the country or some of the generalists, but it still had thousands of agents and thousands of offices all over the country. And we had 100 agents. We had about 80 residential agents and my partner ran that company. And then we had about 15, 20 commercial agents. And I just felt having a team or being a part of a larger team just slowed me down. It like... There was never anybody who was willing to work as hard or as long or as much as I did. The team structure didn't work as much. And of course, as an owner of the company, I just had people coming into my office constantly, right? Asking for advice, help on a deal, the transaction. And so the last several years, I actually just started working from home when I when even when I had the companies and my productivity like went nuts. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it was just like started doing way more and more deals. Like I even make make more calls. I could have provide more customer service, visit more deals, visit more people. And simultaneously, it was just becoming where my partners were doing most of the work running the company. And so it wasn't fair to them. I was still getting a piece of the profits from the company, but waking making way more money as a producer. And so it was just advantageous for both parties to like hey, you take over this, I go do my thing. And we're all still best friends and keeping contact all the time. And it just worked out really well for everybody. And I just like, I just like having complete full control of everything I'm doing. I don't have to answer to anybody. There's no cuts to the house. There's no minimums, no requirements. And I realize that 
I'm now trading hours for dollars. There's no selling my company and doing a Bob Knackle $100 million deal. I feel like I've, I'm have i able to really deliver something cool and unique, far less stress of having lots of staff members and people to, to manage. And it's just my, it's just my thing, man. It's, it's, it's good for me. It's not good for others. Sure. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I'm curious. So on, so you said you're, you're like, I'm a mid-market broker, what, 10 units and up uh, to whatever you can get your hands on. What's like the, if I sold a 10 unit, I don't know, mate, when I first started, they were like 10,000 a door. So it's, but now we we're probably creeping up. 110, 115 a door on average for smaller stuff. Yeah. And you do a really great job at tracking your stats. I, I've always Man. been envious or, or jealous of your ability to do that. That's uh, my thing, brother. <laughs> yeah. So how do you produce those reports? Where do you yeah. get the data from? Yeah. So make a very long story short. Many you have plenty ago. of time. Okay. <laughs> Well, many years ago, I've always been a stats guy. I love putting out reports, love putting together cool information. But back in the day, call it, this was even 12, 13 years ago, even when I was doing general stuff, I would rely on the co-stars and the loop nets and the reonomies and just anything I can get. And so I would put together these reports and I put stuff out. And inevitably, every time I did an email blast, a mailing, a phone call to update customers or whatever... Every couple of times, someone would say, actually, no, that information is not correct. You have that wrong. You have that, or that number of units is wrong. That price is wrong. I'm just, you know what? I'm done with this shit. These companies are selling us information that is put together by 21-year-old guys that have never sold a transaction their entire life. And don't really care they, either. They don't care. They're just making phone calls to owners who don't want to hear from them, who give them bad information, oftentimes on purpose. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to build the most in like CRM and tracking system that anyone's ever seen so that I have full control of my data. So what I did was it took about two years. I could do it in six or eight months today, but it took about two years. I exported every single asset over 10 units in every one of the markets I cover from the tax assessor websites. Okay. You know, a tax assessor, what they really give you is they'll give you parcel number, address, owner name, which is always an LLC. Yeah. Some websites, but most of them don't, will give you number of units. They'll give you acreage, what it last sold for, when it last sold, maybe square footage, and that's about it, right? But it doesn't give you number of bedrooms, and sometimes it doesn't give you type of construction and phone numbers and principles. And just if you look at an Excel column, they'll give you 10 columns, but I need 30 columns for what I do. Yeah. Right? So once I exported all these, I then went and found all those extra columns of information that I want. And I did use a combination <clears> of <throat> some co-stars, some reonomies, driving at, I drove lots of assets, calling owners. And so once I had the template filled out, I then imported into my CRM. I use RealNext. I've been using RealNext since 2002. Doesn't matter what CRM you use, as long as it's able to have a great property database, vendor database, principles, all that stuff. I then imported everything and I just started phone call and I also looked up all the contact information, which was a whole separate way I did that. Um, and I just started calling every single owner and just discussing with them what they like to buy. I never called up and said, hey, you own so-and-so 65 units. What an amazing asset. The market's amazing. I'm amazing at what I do. You should sell with me. We should go to market. I never did that. I knew every broker was doing that. I called up and said, hey, you own so-and-so, you have any interest in picking up another 65 units in Daytona Beach? And I would take down their criteria. 
And as we talked, I get to learn more about their asset and update my CRM even better. So what I have today is the ability to go into my CRM. And if someone said to me, Bo, we're looking to pick up 150 plus unit conventional assets that are built after 1982 that haven't sold in the last two years, that haven't refinanced in the last one year, that's at least two miles away from the coast, that has that is a B class or better, that needs at least $10,000 unit value add, I can literally go in my system and I can take 2,045 prop properties over 10 units in the northern half of Florida, that's how much exists, and I can usually narrow it down to the only 36 properties that they could ever buy right now. And the same thing on the listing side, when I get a listing asset, my CRM, because over the course of 25 years of doing this, I've, been at, I've added every single person who owns these assets, but every person who calls me on every one of my listings, every email I get, every social media messages, I get everybody who wants to buy these assets, I've had the acquisition criteria discussion with them and they're in my database, right? So everything about them, what they like to buy, they like to buy this. I put them in this category of number of units and whether they buy a student, they're in this category. So I have a searchable field for every criteria of the buyer. So when I get a listing for 125 units, instead of email blasting the 22,000 people, like everybody does, so now you're email blasting a 27 unit deal to a guy who only buys 200 plus unit student housing, you right. start to become white noise in that person's inbox. I'm able to take 22,000 people and narrow it down to the only 1,161 that want this exact 125 unit deal in Daytona Beach that's conventional, that's two miles off the coast, that was built in 1984, that has this kind of value add and is ranked in this way. And I'm able to craft a marketing message for this specific asset in a way in which when they get in the inbox, they see Bo Beery, first of all, in the inbox, they're like, I got to look at this because Bo knows my shit. I always look at your emails. So it's, but I have to do it this way because I'm going against bigger shops. In the entire northern half of Florida, I know of only three independents. There's me, Joe LaFleur, and Jamie May. Jamie May is at a whole different level. He does a whole yeah. lot of, of institutional stuff. <clears throat> me and Joe LaFleur are very similar. He carries or covers central Florida and some of North Florida. I'm the only one that's independent. So I have to do things differently. I have to think like a sniper, like a SEAL team member in order to compete. And the way I do that is my data. I love that. I love that approach. So aside from address and unit count, when you may or may not be able to get that from the auditor, what are the other pieces of data that you're focusing on? Yeah, um, I'm pulling that up right now. So the way my system is set up is I like to cover, let me pull up a good example here. Yeah, this one's probably good. Um, so I personally rank every single asset, right? How do you so do that? So what I, the way I rank is I go A, B plus, B minus, C plus, C minus. Rank A's are almost always new construction. Very minority of properties that are a 1984 that's class A, unless someone's just remodeled the absolute crap out of it and it's in a phenomenal location, okay? A C minus is you're going to get shot at if you go there at any time of day right? Or it's boarded up or it's just very high crime. It's a very yeah. difficult asset, right? Um, and then in between. So the way I rank them is a combination of what it's sold for, the rents at the time, the market, the actual locations in the sub market, 
I go through pictures on every single one of these properties to look at the value add that's been done through searching on the website. Huh. Uh, it's, I actually, I go through demographics, what the incomes are in those different assets. I got a whole bunch of different criteria. These days I've become so good at it. I just know the asset already. Sure. Right? Like oftentimes I know what the asset is and I'll verify a few things and then I'll self rank it. And that allows me so that when I'm, if I sell something for someone who has now like 20 days left and they have a 1031 exchange, I don't typically like to work with buyers, but if they got 20 days left and they hired me to sell something and I sold it some for, for them, I'll work on that. So instead of going in, instead of just doing email blasts to 2,045 owners, I can now narrow it down by rankings even and get those. So I track rankings, whether it's market rate, student housing, affordable housing, the actual market it's in. I, obviously, I have parcel numbers. I do building sizes, acreage, beds, units, number of stories, building status, whether it's an existing asset, whether it's under construction, whether it's proposed, mm -hmm. track the years built, the transaction price, what it last sold for, price per unit, the debt, when the debt's coming up, and that's it on the asset side. Between, when you think about Stash, that number of categories, whatever that was, let's say that was 15 categories. When you think about 15 categories, the number of iterations of <clears throat> data or stats or information I can put out, it's endless, right? Yeah. Because if you think about the multiplicity of something, it's like endless in what you could do, but it also allows me to really get stealthy on concentrating on one specific customer or client or ask um, because of how much I track. But the most important thing of tracking all this information is it gives me phenomenal predictive analytics. So what I spend most of my time doing is trying to predict before another broker or another buyer, which asset's going to sell next based on a whole bunch of intersecting things. So I track what's the average hold time of assets. And I track obviously when the loans are coming up, which a lot of brokers do. I track specific types of owners. I track syndications, mom and pops, REITs, what are the average hold times of those guys, right? And I'm wrong the vast majority of time, but it allows me to enter dates into the future based oh. on predictions I made in the past on when this person may be selling. Now they're part of my drip marketing program anyway. They're getting calls from me anyway, but I set dates in place on when I think it's going to sell. And when that date comes up, I look at my data again. Does this jive? Does this work? Yeah, I need to call this guy Stash, right? <laughs> What's your hit rate? It's very low. Is right? it? But it's a lot higher than not doing anything. Sure. Yeah. The way it works now is you've got a thousand people in your database and you just call through them and it's hope you get five and a half percent. It's about five and a half percent on my predictive stuff. Yeah. But if you think about five and a half percent of you on the number of calls, that could be one to three deals a year that I did that were aside from my regular drip marketing and phone calls. So these are dates that I could have put in my to-do list a month ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. The guy could have told me six years ago, Bo, you don't need to call me until January of 2026 because in our prospectus to our investors, we cannot sell until the end of 2026. No need to call me about it. You can call me, you can give me stats. We can talk about family, but you don't even need to ask me period ever. Or I will get sued if I sell before that. I'll enter that date into my system. That's genius. I love that. I wonder if there's a way 
if you could get on those offering prospectus and then you could try and game the system a little bit and and put that into your forward-looking data projections. Um, which part? I missed the first part. Think about syndicators, right? Or REITs. REITs publish or publicize or publish what they think things are worth because they have to because if they're publicly traded. And then sometimes they'll put like the... Pro- projected or predicted hold period. Mm. I wonder if there's a way to get access on a grand scale to those. Maybe the SEC has that. Yeah, that's interesting. The the reality is though, that if if we're talking about REITs alone or publicly traded companies, the odds of them hiring me on a regular basis ain't going to make it worth my time. They can't hire Bo Beery. They're going to hire C.B. Richard Ellis, Colliers, whatever it is. They're, They're missing out. It is, but yes, but I understand the model, right? Yeah. The guy who's in charge of dispositions can't go into the boardroom of 10 people and they represent 40,000 units and tell their investors, I hired Bo Beery. Bo Beery, so we were jealous? No, no, Bo Beery, right? Doesn't, it doesn't happen. It happens every now and then, maybe every five years, I have a publicly traded company that hires me, right? It's, it's just not worth the time of that much tracking and the phone calls and all that. So I have a specific... Of the, there's 963 owners that own these 2,045 assets. Of the 963, my life is spent on 144 of them. Those are what I call my rank A customers, right? Now I talk to all 963, right? I have a cadence on when I talk to them, but the 144 are where I make my living from. These 144, I'm saved in their cell phone. They're saved in my cell phone. We talk on a regular basis. We've transacted and of that 144, I actually even have a very more of a, a very smaller, special, what I call rank X customer that we transact all the time together. We just jive. I know their stuff. They trust me. We're just, we're boom, right? And every broker has these people, right? Yeah. Whether they have the kind of system I have or not, we all have these people who we know they're going to show up on time. They're going to get us LOIs. They're not going to retrade unless there's just a skeleton, Whatever it is, I just try to systematize that 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 thing. So I'm not just playing like an amoeba. I think that's brilliant. Back to the ownership types. Do you classify them? So you you looked at student housing and affordable housing operators. Do you have a transact or, or a, a category for high transactors or things like that? Do you have you look at those metrics? Yeah, I do. So actually every year, at the end of every year, I go through and look at who the top buyers and top sellers were. Yeah. And so I'll make those lists. I'll look at the I can look at the top transaction by sale price and who bought the most number of deals, who bought the biggest sales volume. So I'll put together those stats. I oftentimes publish those on my website, but I also just use it as a cool calling tool. And it's depending on whether they're a rank A, B, or C customer dictates the, the cadence that I call them on. And so we as brokers are always looking for, for ways or excuses to be able to contact someone and give them value. And one thing that I, I think a lot of customers like, especially frequent transactors is, hey, George, by the way, I just got done with my stats for the end of 2023. Dude, you ended up the number seven largest owner for the northern half of Florida on the conventional side. And by the way, if you had just added one more 180 unit deal, you could have been number five. You could have gone up two spots. Oh man, that's really cool. How do you know that stuff? How do you track that stuff? Blah, 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 right? Yeah. But yeah, it's just a neat little thing. And I'll sometimes I'll just email it to them and, and put the rankings in there. It's just fun to do. What I've thought about sometimes is <clears throat> like, what if you sent out like awards to people? I wonder if they would respond to that. 
<laughs> I think so. It's just, it's cool stuff, man. This is, it's, this is a competitive environment. There ain't a one of these people who does more than two or three deals a year who wouldn't right. like to know where they ranked along. And they're competitive because they're competing against all the other buyers for these deals. That's yeah. the environment they're in. Yeah, exactly. None of these people in a best and final Harpo, eh, let them have it. It's good. Those, they seem like good guys. Hell no. <laughs> these, everyone's a killer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're competitive people. That's what attracts people to business, I think. Yeah. One of the things. So you do a lot on social media. You're, you mm. do, can you talk to me a little bit more about that? How has it, where'd you get started? How's it evolved? And yeah, are you seeing returns on it? Dash, let me tell you, man, this is, I was, I had this epiphany. I was in my garage over the weekend and I'm like, you know what? Our business is tough, man. There's a lot of wins and fun and make a lot of money, but dude, it's stressful, man. It's high anxiety. It's very stressful. I'm glad to hear that from you because I feel like ah, I'm the only one sometimes. Bro, listen, I have, and I'm not afraid to say this because I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's anything anyone should be embarrassed about. I have a counselor that I will see every month or two just to check in, just to keep my mind straight, keep my anxiety low, and, and not dump things on my wife, right? Because we deal with a lot of very tough individuals sometimes and tough transactions. And these are high dollar figures and people are very sue happy, right? When things go wrong, particularly against buyers and sellers, it doesn't involve brokers. But anyway, I digress. Yeah. In my garage, I thought to myself, if I could make the same amount of money I do today and just work on putting out phenomenal content that enriches people's lives social media or on or just directly to customers or doing it for brokers whatever that to me is my most fun part i really just enjoy for free putting out information that no one else has seen and just uplifting the market overall and i have tested all of the social media outlets linkedin facebook instagram um, twitter youtube i've done them all and of course as i'm a big numbers guy i've analyzed them all to me, on the as a multifamily broker, I can't speak for other asset classes, as a multifamily broker, LinkedIn by far was not only the best, but to me, the only one that was worth a crack. Okay. YouTube was number two. If you have that kind of personality in front of the camera who convey information in a manner that people will pay attention to. And I'm good at that. So I've used YouTube as a medium to some, sometimes share in, in, in that. For me, Twitter, I just couldn't catch on. I know commercial brokers who kill it on that in different asset classes. Instagram was just, it, it's too general in nature. I, I made a hard run in Instagram and that place is full of haters. Unbelievable, unbelievably bad people who just cruise the internet and are just parts. So I, I came out of that one. Facebook, I just couldn't get much traction at all. It's just more of a person. Facebook, I'm, I'm very, I'm connected personally with a lot of customers. I think it's very good for that. But LinkedIn was my, I started in 2020 is just, that's where my focus is going to be. And to answer your question, Bo, how much money do you make really from it? Right? So here's what I'll say is I've never asked a customer, did you hire me on this deal because you saw me on LinkedIn? Right? I, I, just, I never tracked it that way. But what I will say is, a majority, not a vast majority, but over 50% of my deals, if it's someone who I haven't transacted with before, who didn't already know me, because that's the true measure, 
almost every one of these people said, Bo, I've been following you for years. Bo, I've been seeing your stuff on LinkedIn for years. Bo, I've been getting your mail list for years. Oh, I've yeah. been getting emails for years, right? And so LinkedIn alone or social media as a category, I don't think alone gets you deals. It's in combination with other things. But to me, the big power of social media is that there are so many people who are now on LinkedIn and that when folks, the folks who are consistently on LinkedIn who see your stuff and see you as a player and see you as someone who has the information, what happens is they're at NMHC, right? And they're talking to their friends and they're at dinner that night and they're meeting a few other investors for the first time. And they overhear that guy is getting ready to, is thinking about either selling a refi, an 85 unit deal over in Tallahassee. And the guy who overhears it in Texas, he doesn't buy in, in Florida, but he follows me on LinkedIn. So he says, yo, I just heard you talking about Florida and you're thinking about doing a sale or refi. If you go to sell, I don't know if you follow this guy. There's this guy, Bue Beery or Boo Beery <laughs> or whatever it is. Yeah. You should really look him up. And that's how this shit happens. It's at meetings. It's at conventions. It's at socials. It's at, it's at philanthropy events. But this stuff spreads. And I have 17 or 18,000 followers. I want to be at 30,000 by the end of the year, not because I want to build up and feel like, oh, I have all these followers, like I'm some Instagram kid. It's because it's freaking powerful. Yeah. Right? It is showing that you're an expert in this field by demonstrating the stats that you cover, the sales you've done, the testimonials people have given you. It's a very small world, Stash. I just told you there's only 962 individuals, REITs, national syndications in the world that own every apartment complex over 10 units in the state of in the northern half of Florida, which is one of the top three states in the country. There's only 412 people in the world that own all the ones over 100 units. That's it, right? And how many of those 411 are on LinkedIn on a regular basis? Probably at least 100 or 150, somewhere in there, right? Yeah. These people know each other. They run into each other, they run into each other to conventions, they compete against different deals. And so almost every one of my deals, someone has seen me, followed me, whatever. My goal in life is whenever I make a phone call to a new customer, okay? Let's say a guy in Ohio owns 6,000 units and he just bought his first complex in Florida, right? That comes up on the tax assessor website. My assistant captures that information, grabs all the information she can. She puts in a phone call for me, right? So that's a new call to me. There's only two or three of those a month that happen. Because right? most people are already in those markets, they're buying and selling, I already know. But when I reach out to that guy, my goal in life, every one of my phone calls with my coach, our goal is before I've finished my introduction on the phone call, hey, Stash, my name is Bo Beery. I see you just bought so-and-so here. In oh, hey, hello. he just interrupts me. Oh, yeah, Bo Beery, I I've heard of you. I've been following you for two or three years here. And I Actually, I was talking to my friend the other day who owns some assets. You probably know him. Stash. Oh, yeah, I know Stash. That's what I want, right? We're trying to build a household name through various ways, right? Social media, letters, phone calls, all this stuff. So there is no more cold call, right? You're just known. I love it. It's, <laughs> I've got uh, a number of photos that rotate on my desktop, but one of them is work until you no longer have to introduce yourself. And that's exactly what you've just done or what and you've Social media has been a huge component of that. It's a really big deal. So I'm a big proponent. That's awesome.
Given all the success you've had and the length of By time. By the way, let me, let me interrupt you one time. I'm sorry. Yeah. It was important. That's not just for brokers. To yeah. me, more than any person on earth who should be building a social media profile is our customers, right? You think about the competition. In the northern half of Florida, there are roughly 60 multifamily brokers, okay? The 80-20 rule, 12 of us are doing most of the volume, right? So I'm really on any one specific asset. I only compete against 12, 15 guys or gals, right? The person who's buying multifamily, you're competing against tens of thousands of investors across the globe, not the U.S., India, China, Israel, all these people will buy a 22-unit deal in Daytona Beach. So of anybody in the world, you and the investor listening to this podcast should be on social media building your profile so that when you submit an offer, Bo Beery sees your offer. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I know this cat. These guys are super active, right? I see all the stuff they're doing on social media. I see the properties they're walking during due diligence in Ohio and Texas and Georgia. Now I can tell my seller, this dude's legit. Nobody should be building a profile better than our customers on social media. Continue. Yeah, I think you're right. Because then when the seller asks you, what do you know about them? I don't know. I, I haven't really seen anything out of them. Maybe yeah. you could vouch for the portfolio holdings they have, but if they don't have anything, I don't know. And that's an easy way to pass somebody by in, in favor of somebody who's more established or is going to transact. Yeah. And I like to call people we know common on LinkedIn, right? Like it shows you who we know together. Like first, yeah. I can call up Josh. Hey man, you know, I see that you're so, have you ever done a deal with them before? Yeah. Yeah. It's, you do, we've proofed references. I'm sure you have yeah. as well. Yeah. It's interesting. So I'm curious for, I've got some associate or junior brokers here in my office. What advice would you give to these guys trying to come in and, and build a career in brokerage? Love it. So for the first time since I've done my little boutique company, I brought on a junior and I vowed to never do that. However, I've known this guy since he was eight or nine years old. He was actually my driver for several years. And so he's been learning this stuff. So He's 25 now. I hired him when he was 24 years old, right out of UF. This was just in late 2022 because I saw that nobody was covering under 10 unit deals, duplexes, quadruplexes, aplexes. And I wasn't going to do that. It's a residential product, right? Residential agents who sell a house, the guy who sold the house says, Hey, by the way, Sally or John, I own this quadruplex. Would you sell it? So there's no sophistication in the market whatsoever. So I've been able to bring him on and learn, how can I make this guy a killer? And it takes way more work than I thought. But what I have learned is that in so many brokerages, these young guys are just not getting the training they need. And it's not because it's not the brokerage's fault. It's just the way the model's set up, right? Yeah. A national firm, when they bring on a couple of 20, 25-year-old guys or 30-year-old guys who have switched careers... They can't be there all day, every day, listening to every call and watching every movement. The beauty of what I've created here is that Joe sits in this chair where I am and I sit in that chair over there and I'm able to train him minute to minute on every call, correcting his inflection, his tone, what he said, how he handled everything. 
So what I would say is mentorship is the biggest thing that these guys need to be looking for, right? When they come onto a brokerage, when they're interviewing with brokerages, I would be asking what kind of one-on-one or one-on-two or one-on-three guidance can I get from you? Number two, I would get them set up on a CRM as soon as possible and use it to its full capability. Literally get training from the people who manufacture that software. Watch every freaking video you can, learn all the tricks and trade. Number three, you got to build the data. I, for Joe, when he started, I went ahead and just paid him a little small salary because I wanted those first, I think it was about four months, I had him building the same database I built exporting all the assets, looking up all the information, contact information, importing into the CRM. That's all he did. Yep. And I wanted him to study everything. I wanted him to be able to tell me how many assets there are, the average size, what the rents were, which city had the most, all this crazy shit. I wanted him to be like a Mensa up here yeah. before we made a phone call because I didn't want him going. And then he's just lost that customer for life. My philosophy is, when you make phone calls, okay, if you, I, I'm against making a hundred calls a day. To me, I think it's, I think it's one of the worst things you can do to juniors or even to just as a regular agent, because you can't make that many phone calls and know enough about that person and what they own and who they are and their background to have a phone conversation that is anything beyond, hey, my name is Bo Deary. Do you want to sell? Sure. We only make, three to four call calls a day. I do. Joe, I cap him at five calls a day because before we make a phone call, I'm looking, I have him look up all their social media accounts. I want to know what their background pictures are. I want to know what they look like, how old they are, sex, all that stuff, who we're friends with together on LinkedIn, what they post about, we look up, we look up their, we have access to criminal backgrounds if we want, if they've ever been sure. arrested, whether they had bankruptcies, phone numbers, who their spouses are, their kids. We're not trying to be creepy. I just want to best serve this customer the best I can. And so before I call them, knowing some things about them and everything they own, in that first 10, 15 seconds, I can grab them in a manner in which they're like, okay, this dude's different. He, he knows something that I've never had a call like this from the broker before, right? So I would say learning the, these guys, if you're training them, learning everything, obviously about the asset, but who owns them, right? I, I, I think it's crazy to call someone and not know everything they own in the market. To me, it's a totally different phone call. If you're calling a guy who you think just owns the hundred units in Ocala, but he owns 17 other deals within an hour's drive and you just didn't know it. That's a major player. Yeah. If you call up and sound stupid on the phone, you've lost him forever or a long time. It's going to take you seven or eight more phone calls to make up a good light in his mind because you messed up the first time. But if you made a phone call the first time and rotted off some things about him that you know, or about the transactions that he owns or things that are happening nearby his assets, that turns on a light bulb. My goal when I started this was, I envisioned in my head, when he hung up with me, he called his partner right away. And he was like, Stash, <laughs> I, just, I just got a call from some broker down in Gainesville, Florida. He covers the one out of Florida. You wouldn't believe the stuff he just wrote it off on this phone about the markets and some of the things that we own 
and some of the stuff going nearby. Have you ever heard of this guy before? Right. Or at dinner that night, he was with his wife or she was with his husband or whatever the case may be. And the same thing, honey, I, I just had this conversation with this broker. It was unbelievable. The stuff he just brought it off to me. It was unbelievable. That's what I want to have happen every call. That's amazing. <laughs> That's the complete opposite of lots of other things I've learned or been taught or seen trainings or, or otherwise on. Well, Stash, um, you have to understand, like I just told you, there's only 962 people. You right. can call 962 people easily pretty quickly. Eight to nine month period when you're first yeah. starting off. So there's no rush. Why the hell would you call 900 people in 10 days or That's 20 true. days? It's insane. I see each one of these people as someone who I could earn a fee for, a fee with, and help them at some point before my career is over the next 20 years. So it's an income source. And every time I screw up a phone call or sound stupid, I've probably lost that income source forever. So all I'm trying to do is I'm trying to keep as many of the 962 in love with me as possible. Right? But if you're just doing this, if you're just going, bam, you sound like everybody else. And yeah. they're going to remember that you sound like everybody is or not remember you, which is even worse. And so yeah. it's just, why? What do you do when you get a voicemail? You do half hour research on each client and you, Absolutely. you get a voicemail. What do you do then? Sometimes 45 minutes I spend, but because I know there's only 962, why not spend 45 minutes on each one of them and leave a voicemail that when they hear it, they're like, okay, I need to give this guy a call back, right? That is thoughtful. So and I, it's thoughtful. I leave a piece of information in there that they know I didn't just make a hundred calls that day. I let them specific information about their asset when they bought it, something that's going on nearby, something I have coming for sale two miles down the road, whatever it is, I look at their profile and all the research I've done on them. And I just know what I'm going to either say if I get a hold of them or the kind of voicemail they're going to leave and I'm going to call them back. They're going to call me back. And listen, there's of the 962, there's a good portion of them, right? So my So rank C is the kind of customer that's probably never going to hire me. Right. And that represents that represents almost 50% of my database. Mm -hmm. There's still my drip marketing program. I, I still have a call cadence with them that's much less. Right. But they're just they're either a read or they don't like me or they're best friends with some guy who's a broker. They went to college with this broker, whatever the case may be. That's just going to be the case. But I've, I still did all my research on them. I still update my profile for them as much as I can. I still want to, there's still a possibility of doing a deal with them, right? Yeah. But I just, it's a long game approach. It really is. And that's not to say that doing this doesn't work because it does. There's yeah. plenty of guys we know, and you may be one of them that have made a damn good living doing this. I just wasn't good at it. And it made me very uncomfortable. I, rejection <laughs> for me, if you ever read the five love languages, right? My love language is words of affirmation. So when a guy hangs up on me or says, you're the fifth guy that called me today or whatever, like that hurts me. It shouldn't, Yeah, it hurt me. So early on when I started this business, very early on, I knew this ain't the call for me, man. I got to do something different. What does everybody in the world love? Everyone who owns these assets, what's common among all of them? They want to own more assets. Yeah. So that's when I started coming to them with 
How can I help you buy something? What's your criteria, man? I make a lot of phone calls. I'd love to bring you something today. I'd love, love to it. bring you a deal this year, right? And it gets me in the door, right? So I get their criteria. and But I also understand people. there's some guys like, like I, I brought Joe LaFleur. Joe LaFleur is a freaking killer. He's phenomenal on the phone, right? We've shared the same coaching before. And he's just so good at making lots of calls and kills it, gets lots of listings. And, and he's using his superpower. I yeah. just couldn't do it. So I, I had to come in a different I'm, way. I think I'm a combination of the two of you. I, I really appreciate the data insights, but I can blow up the phone like no other. <laughs> it's like, I, yeah, for me, sometimes the default is if I have a hundred emails or whatever it is, something I'm avoiding, I'm just going to pick up the phone and start calling people. And usually I've got, I have some, at this point I'm established. So it's mostly I'm calling people I already know right. or that know me. And I've got something of a value that I'm going to be talking with them about. So it's not straight cold calls. But <laughs> the, when I first got started, that I was beaten, so to speak, if I yeah. did not make 100 calls a day yeah, or 150 that's a model. Yeah. That's a model. Um, brokerages, you have to understand, brokerages making money from getting a piece of the commissions. And so they're not necessarily thinking about that agent's reputation. No, they're just like, it's a numbers game. Just make as many calls as you can. Yeah. You're going to get deals going. You're going to get commissions. And then when they identify the stashes, which are the killers, then they're going to put a couple guys under that killer and right. And they're going to build a team. And, and that's the model. Yeah. Um, and eventually a stash will still develop a great reputation, even though the first year, whatever, made a bunch of calls that maybe weren't the greatest. Right. Um, yeah. It's, it's yeah. learning, but it's learning through just. But like the CRM that I have or that I had, I don't, it, they discontinued it. I think that would give, it was like flashcards. That's what it was because it was the ownership's information. And then right here is everything that they owned. That was the best. That's the best thing to learn in market. And then you just flip through that all the time and you have your A, a B and C or X, Y, Z, whatever you want to call them clients. And that's how you get through it. I love it. But yeah, that encyclopedic knowledge of not only I got the properties down, but I think you definitely have me beat on the people, the, that, that aspect of it. So cheers to you. If, you. if you can imagine when you're on a phone call with someone for the first time and you've gotten past the first 10 or 15 seconds, imagine how powerful it is. Hey, by the way, Stash, man, listen, before I called you, my assistant was looking for your phone number and she found your LinkedIn profile. You and I know George Costanza together. I'm just using a name. George yeah. Costanza together. I went to school with him. How do you know? Oh, I know George, blah, blah, blah. Boom. Game over, right? Yeah. Or, hey, Stash, listen, my assistant, when she was looking up your phone number, she was Googling your name. She came across your Facebook profile. I saw your background picture is a Porsche 911. You probably don't know this about me, but I'm a huge car guy. Oh, really? Really? Well, when did you get that 911? Boom, boom, boom. But when you're doing your research and when you see what they're posting about, yeah. by the way, I saw, I saw that you posted about this. Man, I feel the same way, but whatever it is. It's just today's technology, there's so much information that you can gather to, to have that connection. And the thing is, it's not, it's not like we're acting like chameleons. Our job is to add value to these customers and we're really good at it, but we have to get past that wall that they're putting up that's hurting them from receiving some unbelievable information from us. That's going to make them wealthy. Think about how many people you've made wealthy in your career. Yeah. And you just have to bring down the wall a little bit. And today's technology is amazing. I want to take advantage of it. Mm -hmm. 
That's awesome, man. I'm just, I'm absorbing all this. This is, this has been a great call. Uh, <laughs> let's see. I don't know. What else do you want to talk about? Let's see. What's good. We can talk about the market a little bit, man. It's yeah. the, you know, Are you going to San Diego for NMHC? This uh, is going to come out afterwards, but. This is so embarrassing, but I've told so many people, I, again, I just, I'm just, I'm 48 years old now. Everything's out in the open. I have a horrific, like clinical fear of flying. Oh, okay. um, it, it happened about eight or 10 years ago. And it just, something just clicked in my head and I only fly once a year on a family vacation. It has to be under three hours. Cause that's how long this medicine I take that knocks me the hell out. I have to have my wife with me because I'm so conked out. It's hard to even get through customs. Yep. I've had to limit my travel to once a year. That's a company of my wife and it's stupid. I've seen a counselor about it. I've actually even done the American airlines. They actually have an actual American airlines, like school for people like me. Wow. Didn't, didn't help. The only thing that's helped is a medicine that I take. Narcotic. Yeah. Yeah. That just lowers me down. So when they moved it to the West coast now permanently, like I'm super bummed. I'm going to have to go. I'm probably just going to make it a cool road trip because I love driving in the car. Yeah, you need to do like a cannonball run. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm going to do. I just, I, I learned of this when they now went to the permanent West Coast. So probably 2025, I'm going to go ahead and just start setting up. Well, I think trip. this is the last year that it's in San Diego and then it'll be in Vegas, right? I'm just the same oh. thing though. It's like, yeah. well, so I'm just super bummed because it's a great, it's a great event. I've gone to all of them that have been in Orlando, right? Yep. And, yeah, I've seen, I've seen you there. Yeah, yeah. No, Posted no. up, talking to people, it's doing embarrassing, work. Man. It's embarrassing, man. It's just, it sucks because, you know, it's such good interaction between customer and brokers and a lot of great relationships and deals are done from it. And I'm like, yeah, but anyway. I look at NMHC as like a necessary evil. Yeah. Because uh, it's like speed dating over two days, but yeah. you do get deals and traction out of it. And it's, yeah, you, you definitely have to be there. Yeah. So, yep. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the market? Where, how is 23 for you? And then what are your thoughts for 24? Yeah. So 2023, I was down 55% on income, which I actually count as a win, <laughs> right? It's, it's not too bad. And almost all of my deals, no, all of my deals were under hundred units, right? So typically I do 12 to 15 deals per year, roughly half or hundred plus units. The other half are under hundred units. All of my deals were under 100 units in 2023, hence why the income was less. But that's because the larger deals, they did sit on pencil. Yeah. Even though smaller deals are affected the same way proportionally, if you think about most deals went down, I calculated between 16 and 20% in value to, from the height. On a $20 million deal, that's four or $5 million, okay? Yeah. On a $2 million deal, right? It's a hundred grand, 200 grand. And the guy who owns the $2 million deal, most of those have a longer hold time. So his yeah. basis is lower. He ain't not selling over a hundred grand, right? So those more of those deals transacted. However, when the feds announced a little softer landing for 2024, and they were going to have some interest rate relief, my world took off about beginning to mid-December. I put eight deals under contract, again, all of them smaller, okay? Actually, all of those were under 50 units, eight deals under contract. It was just like, and it was in a 12-day span, bam, ba 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 bam ba 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 bam right? Good stuff. Four new listings, right? Which is awesome. Great. And I've got another possible two more that I got a call on today, good-sized deals. 
20 plus million dollar deals. So the action has really picked up. The number of BOVs, and this is all, I'm talking about like six weeks. The number yeah. of BOVs have really picked up. So I think 2024 will, in my opinion, I think there'll be 30% more number of transactions. I think the volume will probably be in the 20, 20% probably less. Because I still think there'll be more under 100 unit closings than over 100 unit closings. So I think there'll be 30% more number of closings, which will still be way down from a 2021 or 2022, but certainly better than 2023. I'm feeling pretty good. I think I'll still be down. I think all this will be down from 2021 income, yeah. um, but it's still it should be pretty decent. It's interesting what you said about the drop in uh, pricing value of deals. Because we, so about midway through last year, I was like, we are just, we're missing on every single deal. I was like, so I asked my analysts, I was like, can you go back and create a report? And it's just simple. It's either seller's, it's seller's expectations and either what it sold for or what our optimistic value was on our BOB or mm -hmm. our underwriting. And it came out to 17%. And so same receipt, we saw the same thing, basically. Yeah. We, we had an average year as far as income is concerned, but it wasn't, wasn't tremendous. And average is a win also, but hoping that 24 is better. And I too have seen an increase in activity, BOVs, prospects, listings, things like that. So yeah. Yeah. Feels like once people came back, feels like a lot of people didn't go on vacation this year for Christmas break. Yeah. Um, yeah. And everybody's back and it's like, all right, let's figure out a way to make some deals happen. I, I would say the, the biggest effect on the market, obviously debt and insurance was a big proponent, specifically in Florida, right? For yeah. And, and that's caused a lot of it. But the kind of the bigger effect on value, if, if you're looking at it numerically, was the effect of those two components on the mood towards market rents. Okay, specifically what I'm saying is, if you and I are underwriting a deal in early 2022, if a seller needed $25 million, okay, we would go out and find market rent comps that showed $1,800 a month rents, even though his in-place was 1,500. And we'd go and find nine rent comps and yeah. we put them in our package and that was the market rent that we sold and everybody went for it and they bought it. And by the way, most of them would get the $1,800 pretty soon, right? Because the market was still good. So it worked out. Then after about three or four, maybe five rate hikes, okay, no, then everyone was saying like, Bo, we ain't believing $1,800 market rents, okay? If you've got 150 units, if you've gotten 30 or 40 units that you've gotten 1800 on, we'll use that. Otherwise, we're going to use whatever, 1600, 1650, right? Yeah. Then once on all the interest rate hikes were in place, seven or eight deep, okay, when we're now borrowing at seven to 8% several weeks ago, then it was, yeah, no. <laughs> if your in-place rent is $1,500 a month, I may use a market rent of 1550, maybe $1,600 if you've got places right next door. And so- the debt and the insurance created an atmosphere globally, and I use social media to blame on the negative side for the most part, where now the conservatism of the future market rents that could be achieved has come way down. The granted, the rents haven't even come down, at least in Florida, not much at all, very minimal. 
Yeah. So the rent comps, those nine rent comps are still there. Right. They never I went I still do believe you're going to get the $1,800. But when the mood of the market is such where now everyone expects to buy something almost off of a T12 with a very minimal bump on market rents, that's where we have problems. Yeah. And by the way, when you look at that numerically, the effect of interest rates going from, let's just say, 4 to 7% or insurance going from $500 a unit per year to $1,500 a unit per year, those are big effects. But when you take a market rent from 1800 to 1550 on an IRR and a cash on cash, that shit blows away the effect of debt or insurance. You're saying that the changing of the rental rate far outweighs the increase of the expenses? On value, yeah. Just go yeah. into a pro forma. Just go into a pro forma and change 1800 to 1500 and look at the effect. Oh, yeah, 100%. Value, yeah. Value versus going from 4 to 7% or from 500 yeah. to $1,500. I see well, what you're saying. Yeah. And by the way, we have all three of those at the same time. So yeah. it's not like we're anything like individually. All three of them happen at the same time. They're all they all work together, but that's why no deals get done. Conspiracy. Yeah. yeah. No, that's what we had one deal. We had one deal where he's like, yeah, we're targeting, six, I don't know, 65, 64 million, something like that. And we were struggling to get to 50. And he's like, yeah, it's a 4.6 cap. And I was like, my guy, in what world? I, I don't know. Yeah. Do you have 2% assumable debt? What's going on here? <laughs> and he did not. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, we yeah, said. The assumable debt people, you're one of those sellers, that's cream of the crop right there. That's good stuff. Yeah. As long as you assume appropriate leverage. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the problem is there's usually just such a huge delta, right? Yeah. <laughs> Loan to value becomes pretty wild. Yeah. Bo, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for your time and generosity with your thoughts. I, I really appreciate it. These are my favorite ones, man, with another broker. It's great. It's wonderful. What is, I've got your social media page. I'll make sure I push it out when I- cool when I post it and all that, but what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, three ways. Number one, my website is bowberry.com, B-E-A-U-B-E-R-Y. My contact information is on there, but the reason you want to visit that, whether you invest in Florida or not, I want you to go to the resources button at the top of my page, and then all the markets I cover will be there. If you click on any one of those markets, I want you to see the kind of stats that I that I you know, cover because if you can master those stats for your markets, you'll be a killer. You can react opportunities quickly. Brokers will bring you more deals. The second way is I have a YouTube channel called Bo Knows Multifamily. I've got playlists on there for beginners, advanced level investors, analytics, brokers, all kinds of stuff. And then the third way is, is I wrote a book, Multifamily Investors Who Dominate. And I don't care what level of investing you're in or as a broker. I think it's a really great book because I just spilled the beans on how I've watched some of the worst investors on the planet carry their business up to the most elite guys I've ever seen who transact 8, 10, 12 deals a year, right? And, and what's the common traits? What do they do? How do they react? What do they, how do they participate with the brokers? And it's just a play, it just lays out almost like the secret world that you and I, Stash, get to see on how yeah. the best in the world operate that other investors can't see. And so that's, that's right. kind of the the best advice I can give you on three ways to contact me. Love it, man. Thank you so much and hang yeah, around for a minute and have a great day, Bo. I appreciate right, it. See you. Okay.